Should we do it? Let's do it. So, Tom, am I starting or you? Oh, yeah, sorry. What you can't hear me. <laughs> go ahead. I'll, I'll shut up. Okay, we're good to go. We're good to go. So welcome to another one of our podcasts. I've been, my feedback currently is I have to talk more slowly and less in my <laughs> stupid English accent, which currently <laughs> is almost impossible to interpret. I've been told by a number of people. So I'm going to let Brian do most of the talking. We, uh, we're joined today by, uh, by Tian, who's going to talk about some of the ASCO abstracts, which she, uh, she presented earlier today or summarized earlier today. Tian, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, you're very welcome here, of course, and we're very honored to have you with us. Hi, yes, thank you. I'm Dr. Tian Zhang. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Duke Cancer Institute um, in the Duke uh, Medical School. Great, Tian. So thanks. Yeah, thanks. This is Brian. Thanks again for joining us. So you are a discussant, I think, for three of the ASCO abstracts. And in whatever order you see fit, why don't you just take us through sort of one by one the high level highlights and then we'll we'll have some discussion. Great, absolutely. And I'm uh, privileged and honored to um, pr uh, discuss these uh, posters um, from uh, really uh, amazing uh, studies um, throughout. Um, and these are targeted therapies, of course, um, in and how we're, are, we're sequencing um, these FGFR inhibitors um, in metastatic urothelial cancer. Uh, the first study that we wanted to highlight um, was presented by Dr. Sifka Radke, um, an updated follow-up on the erdafitinib trial um, that she presented um, about a year ago at ASCO. Um, so uh, actually two years ago, right? In 2018, um, the erdafitinib data was first presented. So um, this was 101 patients um, that uh, were treated with erdafitinib, um, eight milligrams daily. And the updated results um, shown at this year's ASCO uh, showed um, the objective response rate continued at 40% for all comers and 39% for chemorefractory patients. Um, and the median duration of response was about six months. Um, but of note, um, there were 49% um, patients who were surviving at 12 months and 31% who were surviving at two years. And as you all know, um, this in a treatment refractory cohort like this, um, you know, getting patients to live beyond one to two years is um, a major uh, feat um, and uh, improvement. And Tian, were there long-term responders? I mean, that median seems sort of typical for targeted therapies, you know, from our world of kidney cancer. But how about long-term responders to the drug? Right. So the investigators talk about 31% uh, of these patients had duration of responses over 12 months. Um, and, you know, getting patients stable or improved um, for more than a year is pretty clinically meaningful. Sure. Tia, my career has been set back on multiple occasions. And what, <laughs> one of the biggest setbacks I've had is over-interpreting single-arm trials, which, um, has, which has, you know, has been driven by a lot of patient selection. And often patients taking part in single-arm trials, each sort of early single-arm trials, is there's a lot of patient selection. And sometimes we end up picking the winners and they do really well. Um, is there any evidence of that from this cohort? You know, it was a, a distinctly biomarker-selected population of uh, patients who had FGFR mutations and fusions, and, you know, that is what er the erdafitinib approval was based upon as well. Um, but, it, you know, in this patient population where we're uh, refractory to chemo as well as immunotherapies, 
um, having this type of uh, response is pretty significant. And I think, you know, in our clinical practice, I've, we've been able to salvage some patients um, for you know, a year or more. And that, I think, is clinically meaningful. Tien, so the biomarker um, is important. The biomarker that they've used is with the PCR technique. and They haven't used um, a gene panel um, as mm-hmm. in the sort of foundation medicine way. They haven't used circulating biomarkers. It's a PCR um, FGF23 um, uh, biomarker panel. What is the prognostic and predictive value of that? And wh- wh- why have they have picked that PCR approach rather than using what some would describe as perhaps a superior method looking at, um, at, uh, at um, more robust ways of measuring um, mutations? Yeah, we'll get to that in our second study, but this, uh, the tissue-based FGFR fusions and mutations, we assume are driver mutations and fusions of the FGFR receptor, and, you know, that does activate um, the, the receptor signaling. Um, so you're right in that it is tissue-based testing uh, and genomic sequencing, um, and we don't have the mRNA data for these patients, um, but... Uh, I think in the setting of a driver uh, oncogenic mutation like this, um, where the it, it's molecularly um, actionable and um, a target for these types of treatments, um, uh, that it is actually another uh, venue to actually uh, select patients um, in our clinical practice uh, since the Erdafitinib um, uh, FDA approval about a year ago, you know, it's really um, changed how we approach um, molecular screening. So Tian, I have a a question for you on that basis in your clinical practice. Mm -hmm. When are you, are you testing everybody up front? What, what panel are you using or are you waiting until they're refractory? Right. Um, at Duke, we've um, sent mostly foundation medicine. So the foundation Mm -hmm. one tissue-based test, um, and, you know, since the approval, we've um, sele- uh, selected mostly the higher risk patients at the time of cystectomy, particularly if they've um, had prior chemotherapy. Um, we're trying to think about, you know, if they have these FGFR mutations or translocations, which, you know, we think probably about 15% of these patients will have um, you know, those are the patients who do well with a targeted um, treatment like erdafitinib in, in the metastatic setting. If they haven't had it at the time of cystectomy, then we'll send it at the time of uh, first metastatic uh, diagnosis. So early. Um, to try to line up, yeah, yeah, to try to line up next line treatments. Tia, can okay. we move on to the second abstract? Is it premature to do uh, that? Let's move on. Let's keep going. Let's keep this. Let's keep the show on the road. Let's move on. The, let's move on to the uh, second abstract. What do you want to talk about next? Our second abstract was presented by uh, Dr. Jonathan Rosenberg, and this was also on FGFR-targeted strategies with rogaratinib um, in combination with atezolizumab. Um, and rogaratinib in the phase one setting in the, uh, had a 23% objective response rate, um, so that formed the basis to combine it with atezolizumab. And this one, as we alluded to earlier, is biomarkly uh, selected for FGFR mRNA overexpression. Um, and they also tested for the FGFR1 and 3 mutations and translocations. Um, they took uh, and they, they enrolled 31 patients, um, 11 of whom were treated uh, with rogaratinib 800 milligrams twice a day with atezolizumab 1200 milligrams every three weeks, and 20 patients who were treated with the 600 milligrams um, twice a day dose of rogaratinib. 
Um, and uh, they, uh, the primary endpoint of this phase one trial was, of course, safety and toxicity. And so um, these patients um, had diarrhea and hyperphosphatemia, um, increased LFTs and nausea. Um, but the recommended phase two dosing and the maximum tolerated dose was the 600 milligrams twice a day. They presented some good efficacy data. Um, about 44% of these patients had objective responses. Is there a reason to believe that there's a difference among these FGFR inhibitors? I mean, again, in our world of kidney cancer, there are definitely subtle differences, but I think you could argue at the end of the day that the efficacy and toxicity is, is sort of grossly similar. Just wondering about these drugs. Right. Um, and it was interesting to me, too, that rogaretinib, um, you know, we're looking at FGF1, uh, FGFR1 and FGFR3 versus erdafitinib. We were looking at FGFR2 and FGFR3 um, mutations and translocations. So I do think there are some subtle um, differences in the receptor activity and, mm -hmm. and which receptors they target. Um, clinically, I don't know if it will be significantly meaningful in terms of, you know, the, the responses that we right. see. Um, and especially since, you know, this one is a mRNA-based overexpression um, biomarker selected population, um, you know, we'll be uh, seeing a different population potentially uh, for rogaratinib selection. So, Brian, I think that uh, we did a little bit of work with uh, in a study called Biscay, um, which uh, was four five AZD four five four seven. We used it alone or in combination with Juvalimab in a two to one randomized trial, which we um, which we presented last year, and we showed a thirty percent response rate for the combination uh, and thirty percent response rate for the monotherapy confirmed response. So we didn't see a big bounce there, and mm -hmm. the drugs by itself showing about a thirty percent response rate. We didn't show any hyperphosphatemia. The erdafitinib program, the dosing depends on the presence or absence of hyperphosphatemia. And so I kind of, I think there, there are differences between these drugs. And um, I, don't know, Do I don't know what that means, but I also think the biomarkers are different and the drugs are different. Yeah. So Do you think one would work where the other fails? Is there any experience there? I've not seen that data. Yeah, I'm, I've not seen that. And has anybody done biopsies upon progression to know if you're getting, I don't know, mutations or, you know, like they've done in lung cancer with EGFR, et cetera, or is it sort of too early for that? There's going to be some work on that in the not too distant future. And some of that, some of that might be work on circulation biomarkers as well. As, uh, okay. as, the as the poster um, from Jonathan Rosenberg um, does talk about the downstream mutations in PI3 kinase. Um, and those patients who had resistance um, gene mutations in PI3 kinase did not respond as well as the patients who did not have these resistance mutations. Um, so I think probably it's early days, um, as Tom said, for FGFR mutations um, and you know resistance um, uh, mutations for patients who are progressing on these agents. Um, but mm -hmm. any downstream mutations um, seem to be somewhat predictive for some resistance. Cool. Um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to sort of follow this story, but clearly there's activity here and, and people are starting to build on it. Do you want to go to number three? Are we ready for that? Yeah, sure. So uh, the third abstract that we presented and discussed uh, was by Dr. Monty Powell and his colleagues, um, uh, focusing on the metastatic urothelial uh, cancer cohort of the COSMIC-021 study. Um, that's treatment with cabozantinib um, in combination with atezolizumab. 
Um, and these patients had all progressed after prior chemotherapy, but were immunotherapy uh, naive. Um, they had a primary endpoint of objective responses, and um, this was a, a cohort of about 30 patients um, and in which they saw an objective response rate of 27%, including two complete responses, um, and 63% disease control rates. What do you think about the toxicity? Yeah, so, you know, it actually looks um, pretty good. Um, the only immune-mediated um, hypothyroid levels were 10% of patients um, and uh, chorioretinitis in one patient that was grade 3. They didn't show any other um, grade 3 or more um, toxicities in terms of immune-mediated um, the more common uh, general treatment-related um, side effects included asthenia. Um, they had uh, about 13% of pulmonary embolus and uh, 7% wow. with neutropenias um, that were great. Brian three. and I have quite a lot of experience so, with transaminitis. Did, the, did you notice any transaminitis? They had, there were 27% of patients who had increased in transaminases, um, but only 3% that were grade three. Um, okay. And then there was one patient who developed a grade four intestinal perforation, um, but no grade yeah, five Difficult deaths. question. Single-agent atezolizumab mm -hmm. in um, keynote 45, 21% response rate in a randomized phase three mm -hmm. in a platinum refractory population. Um, this mm -hmm. is obviously, we can't do trial comparisons and blah, blah, blah. But the difficulty with moving forward with this is it's not clearly out of the park better than that 21%. Atezo only had 13, well, only. Atezo had a 13% response rate and in their randomized phase three. I mean, I guess that's one of the, one of the things in 211. And that's one of the things that people have talked to me about in neurothelial cancer is whether there is a difference in response to PD, pdl one inhibition. Um, are you bought into that concept? Um, and clearly, Pembro has got a positive randomized phase three, a Tezo's got a positive randomized phase three, and a Valimab's got a positive randomized phase three. So I don't want to get into the PDPDL1 debate necessarily, but um, have, have you got a feel on, on this? Is, are you using the 21% as a benchmark or the 13% as a benchmark? Well, uh, you know, in from a clinical perspective, it, it doesn't seem that the PD-1 versus PDL one inhibitors are, are causing too much differences in terms of clinical responses that we're mm -hmm. seeing. And, um, but I, I, you know, early on, I did think, well, there's a whole lot more PDL one uh, to saturate than PD-1s. Um, and so maybe there would be a difference. And we do see, you know, the survival difference of Keynote um, and Pembrolizumab. Um, so perhaps there's a difference there, but, you know, clinically, when we're using these agents, um, I, I just generally talk about, you know, the objective responses from all of these agents is between 15 to 20 percent, you know, and, and it's hard to predict, I think, so far, um, which patients are going to be in that 15 to 20 percent. So, so where does this combo go in bladder cancer? I mean, as Tom said, the response rate looks, you know, in the range mm -hmm. of a Tezo mono, depending on what data set you use. Clearly, there's more toxicity by adding Cabo. That's not surprising you know, given everything else going on in bladder. I don't, I don't know what the plans are, but what are your thoughts about moving this forward? 
Um, uh, Cosmic O21 does have um, more cohorts to come. So cisplatin ineligible uh, with no prior treatments, cisplatin eligible with no prior treatments, and also in immunotherapy refractory disease. And so I think uh, the time will tell and, you know, how much toxicity are we able to handle for these patients are um, when we combine these agents and, you know, is it truly more effective than monotherapy? Do, do you think there's enough activity in, in the study that Monty's reporting to, say, do a big phase three? I mean, that's ultimately the question. These single cohorts, they'll all generate some signal, but not definitive. So right. when the rubber meets the road, that's what we're deciding is, is are they going to go forward in a big study? Yeah. And, you know, this combination has shown enough activity that they're going forward in uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer and also in uh, right. anesthetic <laughs> renal cell um, and so, you know, is there enough activity here in urothelial cancer? I think that's a really good question, Brian. Um, what do you think? Hey, Mike, you... <laughs> hey, I get to ask the questions here. So, no, so um, this... yeah, I don't know. I mean, I struggle with the prostate data yeah. because the single agents don't have much activity. The combo in a very small study seemed to have wild activity. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen there. As Tom said, we've all been burned by these small studies with seemingly great activity that end up yeah. crashing and burning in phase three. So I, I don't, I would say, no, I don't think so. You know, I mean that 20 ish percent response rate, et cetera, at the cost of toxicity, I wouldn't necessarily, if it were my money, spend it, you know, right now from the data I've seen, but, but I don't know. I mean, it's, I see a lot of Cabo Atezo data out there. I'm not really sure what to I, do uh, with. I feel at the moment that um, it's, I think it's entirely justified to combine with PD or PD one. I think they are from the back of the room interchangeable, and are doing a very similar thing until proven otherwise. Uh, and so I think atezolizumab is a, a very valid combination drug in this setting. I think the cabazatinib combination, I, I would be nervous about taking it forward in randomized phase three. Um, I think that we've seen, um, we, and we're going to see more data, but we've seen data with EV, um, plus Pembro that looks really good. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen some chemotherapy combination data that looks pretty good. Um, and, and we've seen different sort of, and we're going to see more and more data coming out. And this, from, from my perspective, it doesn't look spectacularly competitive with these response rates as it stands. Um, it's one of those things where the confidence intervals might be underestimating it, but I'd be, I would be quite nervous about, about a frontline randomized phase three in the cisplatin ineligible population. You know, I think yeah, in randomizing to, to um, you know, third-line chemotherapies, though, um, potentially there could be a signal there. Um, a lot of these, um, you know, refractory populations, I think they're with some immunomodulatory effect that we're basing the cabozantinib effect on, potentially they could be salvageable. Um, but I think you're right, it will be hard to um, to randomize to tezomonotherapy. Tian, yeah, these have been really interesting, uh, three really interesting pieces. I, I guess the the, the momentum um, for you, which one, if you had to take one of the three forwards into a randomized kind of, which is the most, for you, the most exciting piece? I know it's really hard to do, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> which, I, I, don't, I don't pick the person you like the most. That would be, <laughs> but... Um, which for you do you think you know which would you if you were given the choice of jumping on one of the bandwagons to take forward which one would it be oh which one would i put my money on well you know erdafitinib already is in randomized phase three in the <laughs> trial yeah, so, uh, yeah. 
the front runner for now. Um, the others have some catch up work to do, um, but you know, interesting and biomarker selected populations are certainly you know a needed um, area for us to find effective treatment strategies for these patients who have. Um, progress despite multiple other mm. treatments. And so I hope that um, we'll have some more effective combinations. You've got a career in Washington in front forward. of you, Tian. That was an excellent, <laughs> that was an excellent <laughs> answer. <laughs> any more? Have you got anything you want to add, Brian? Uh, no, I think this was great. Thanks, Thank you so much for joining, for joining us. us today. And we're going to see you very, very soon, I hope. Very good. Thank cool. you so much. Bye, bye, bye. All right. Take care. Bye.